Well, good morning. It's uh, wonderful to see you all. And if you're new with us, let me add my welcome as well. It's great that you can be joining us as we continue our series in Genesis. But uh, look, why don't we begin in prayer? I think it's probably a good place to begin. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, help us to understand your good design for us and to embrace it as good because it is from you. Give us a vision for your goodness that's able to expose the lies of the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, today's passage describes life in the happy land, uh, in the Garden of Eden. And there's a snapshot here of utopia, of paradise, the way things were meant to be, of of the kinds of things that people long for. This is a picture of the world before sin in today's passage, a picture of the first marriage of the perfect relationship with God, with one another, and harmony with the environment. Imagine, imagine, no arguments, no divorce, no, no famine, no pollution. This is utopia. And this actually really matters for us as Christians because we need to remember this ideal. This is the way things were meant to be. This is God's good design that we are reading about. Uh, it is what life should be like now. It isn't like this now because of sin. And yet we still strive for the kind of peace that we see here laid out before us. This ideal of the life in the happy land is surely one that our society has forgotten. And yet all people were created to be in the garden that we're about to read about. And so nobody really moves uh, past it, if I could put it like that. And I was reminded of uh, this... Uh, this week, as I was reading the newspaper, Sydney Morning Herald, and there was an article by Abir Dib titled, uh, Unhappy Wife, Unhappy Life. Does anyone actually enjoy marriage anymore? She asked. And her article is basically a list of examples of unhappy relationships. Now she points to the unhappy relationships of celebrities, divorce rates, people's having affairs. Uh, she speaks of unhappy wives and uh, you know, of mothers and newborns being deserted by hopeless men. Uh, she points out the sad jokes that people make, the old ball and chain and, you know, this kind of cartoon. This is the one that she had in her article. And, uh, you know, they're kind of funny, and yet when you think about it, they're actually really, it's actually quite disturbing and really unkind. She says these jokes are coping mechanisms for people struggling in unhappy relationships. And just when you think you know where she stands, she ends by saying this, I'll quote her, Underneath this bleak view of the reality of marriage is my strong desire for romance and monogamy. Love is the greatest joy in life, feeling secure, excited, intellectually stimulated and supported by companionship. What? Where did that come from? It, it, really, it really struck me. You know, We never really get past this ideal in the Garden of Eden, of this peace of, of companionship, of uh, harmony with the world around us and those around us in it. We never move past wanting this good world, free of sin, secure, beautiful, and loved. And so we may have forgotten where we came from as a society, but we never escape our deep longings for it. We are all still sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, those who were meant to be in the garden. Well, let's dive into our passage and have a look at it and learn the way life was meant to be uh, and what we should be striving for I've got a few uh, basic headings, nothing too complex. Uh, And don't forget, if you've got questions, jot them down. We'll do a and a at the end after a short prayer time. So do write down questions for that. There's uh, there's plenty that come up here. 
Well, we begin with a garden. Uh, 2 verse 8 of Genesis says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. And so Eden means something like happy land, paradise, uh, utopia perhaps, as I said. And it's written about as though it's a real place, an actual geographic location with known geographic features. That that is the way the writer speaks of it. Uh, So far in the book of Genesis, if you're wondering how this little bit fits in with the the previous verses in Genesis, uh, we've had days one to seven, haven't we? Uh, Where God steps through the making of creation. And then uh, two... Chapter 2, verse 4, begins a new section in the book of Genesis. The first genealogy, or or the first record in Genesis. And this is going to keep happening in the book. There'll be the record of Noah and all these different people. But in 2, 4, it says that these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. So this is the the, the record of the creation. And 2, 4 kind of does a rewind and retells the first part of creation again. Um, 2 verses 5 to 9, they go back and they describe the creation from the perspective of the man, Adam. And, and we see that creation was set up and kind of uh, sort of paused as it waited for the man to come and work the land. So, for example, verse 5 says, No shrub of the field had yet grown in the land. Uh, did you see that? No shrub had yet grown. It was kind of paused. And then verse 7, Then God... Uh, the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground. And then in verse 9, everything takes off and all the trees grow and the animals come. And so we read that God formed man out of the dust. And you may know there's a little play on words here. Uh, The Hebrew word uh, for ground is Adama, and then Adam was made from the dust, from the ground. We are dirt. That's our composition, and that is our name, Adam, from the Adama. In verse 8, God places the man in the garden he has grown in Eden. Uh, God's made the person, this dirt man, a home, a garden. Uh, And I don't know if you can relate to this. I don't know if you've ever had a pet. I had a pet mouse when I was growing up. I don't know why we got pet mice. They're disgusting little things, but... uh, you know, it was manageable, and we had a little the, the pet mouse, and you get your little cage, and you put the little wheel in there, and the, the bowl of food, and the bowl of water, and then you, you drop your mouse into the little home you've made it. And it's very much the image of what God is doing here with this man, Adam, that he's made. Uh, not a dollhouse, but a, you know, a human house or a garden. It's actually kind of significant because we see that humanity is not the, the byproduct of the elements. The elements are for the humans. Humans are God's representation, his image here within the creation. The next key element we're told about is the origin of life. I mean, where does life come from? How do we get from dirt and chemicals and elements to actual life? You know, we share 99% of DNA with a lettuce, uh, and yet we're 99% more alive than a lettuce. Uh, To a chemist, we're the same as a lettuce, but to a psychologist, we're totally unique. And so the Bible seems to say here that the difference is the breath of life. It's from God. Verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. And so the entire passage, all through the Garden of Eden passage here, is woven God as the source of life. God's life flows and sustains It's God's breath that makes mankind what he is. 
all of this um, being a, a very different way of understanding what a person is than our society today. And there's another play on words here. God's breath is his spirit. The word breath and spirit throughout the Bible, it's the same, it's the same word. There's lots of little plays on it. And so when God breathes life into us, he's giving us his spirit. Uh, God performs the first CPR. He, he gives the breath of life to man. Uh, and God is so poetic, isn't he? Even now, you know, when someone drowns, uh, we bring them back by breathing life into them, don't we? Perhaps a reminder from God that he first breathed life into us. And so without God, we would just be dust. But uh, of course, 1 Corinthians 15, the great New Testament passage on the resurrection tells us that when we die, we return to the dust, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. And yet Jesus breathes life into us, making us an eternal living being so that uh, even when the body dies, the person God makes remains forever. But uh, we, we don't remain, though, when our bodies return to the dust as a kind of this floating spirit forever. Rather, we are to be placed once more in a garden, in the recreated, the new creation. We as recreated uh, bodies. That is the way we are meant to be, in the final garden for eternity. In case you're wondering where this is all heading, that's the end point. Uh, there's another picture in our passage, a uh, picture of God sustaining life in the garden, and that is the rivers that flow. So 2 verse 10 says, A river went out from Eden to water the garden. Uh, from there it divided and became the source of four rivers. And so uh, Scripture a number of times refers to God as a sustaining river running through a city garden. You know, we get that image in Revelation and in the Psalms and other places, the prophets. But the rivers are symbolic of the life-giving presence of God. The life force, it's not from Star Wars or Mother Earth. Life is from God. God gives and sustains life. And so we need to live with God today and forever. Uh, of course, people try to find this Garden of Eden. Uh, where, you know, where was Eden located? And uh, we're just not certain. Where were these rivers? What are they? We, we, we really just don't know. Uh, of course, that's what all the movies are about, searching for the source of life, the holy grail, the elixir of eternal life with, you know, professors and maps and so on. <laughs> but all we can really do is take God's word for it at this point. Eden is spoken about as a real place with real rivers flowing from it. This was the place where few, uh, humans were first placed by God. And so there's no point uh, trying to find it. That's, that's not the point. Uh, who knows, really? Well, next we ask, what was the man doing in the garden? Uh, were there deck chairs? Did Adam learn to wakeboard? Uh, we assume there was some skinny dipping, I imagine. I mean, there wasn't clothes. Well, uh, this, I've got some bad news. If you've had a really big uh, work week, this, this might not be what you want to hear. If you've been looking forward to retirement, putting your feet up, uh, I hate to say the man in paradise, he was working, um, serving I think you could say. Life in the happy land is pictured as serving God. Let's think about what that means here in verse 15, which says, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And so the man is to work, literally to till the ground, is usually what the word refers to as to kind of sowing crops. Uh, but this is before the curse, before weeds grew. It's hard to imagine what gardening would be like if there wasn't any weeds. 
Uh, so to work here is not the same kind of wrestling with a broken world. That's kind of what our work is, trying to keep on top of things and, and broke, uh, fix broken things. That's somehow not what the work here is. Uh, the work in Eden is somehow more wholesome. Uh, and the word used for work, it's frequently used in a, in a religious sense of serving God, especially uh, of the priestly duties in the tabernacle throughout the Old Testament. Uh, likewise, the word for guard or, or watch over in verse 15, it's frequently used in relation to the tabernacle. In fact, the whole garden, if you think about the garden as a whole, uh, all of it is set up a bit like the tabernacle. There's lots of languages, lots of ties, lots of symmetries pointing to the fact that this garden as a whole was like a big uh, kind of tabernacle. Uh, the tabernacle, if you remember, was the place where God met with his people. It's the place where God's presence was with his people, and that's very much what the garden was. And so as in the Eden paradise, this was one of serving a God. The final paradise, that the new creation will be one where we work serving God in heaven as well. Uh, so a couple of uh, passages that talk about that, Revelation 22.3, it speaks of the curse being lifted so that we can serve God in the heavenly city. Or uh, if you remember the parables of Jesus, he talks about the faithful servant. You know, if you're faithful in this life you'll be put in charge of much in the next. But let's move on uh, uh, to some of the other things that we see told about in this Garden of Eden, uh, and, and that is to the, to the fruit. Uh, I've never really liked fruit that much. I much prefer my sweets. Uh, and ever since I read about the garden and the forbidden tree, I've always just been a bit suspicious about apples. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to risk it. I'm just going to have Tim Tams. And we'll obviously look at the, the fall and the eating of the forbidden fruit next week in chapter 3. But there is mention of a tree here before the fall. And it comes up as God tells the man how to live in the garden. The command to work in the garden is immediately followed by what you might describe as a kind of giving of the law, a revelation of God's will to Adam. So have a look at verse 16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat of any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so God gives a, a single command, you could say. He draws one line. I'll give you all the rest of the trees, a total abundance, uh, but not this one tree, the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And more about that, what that tree is and what it means next week, but for understanding this garden paradise, more significant than the tree itself was the fact that there was a, a prohibition, a law. God's law, it's always been part of his creation with the humans. The garden, there was one rule, don't eat from the tree. To eat at the tree was to, to reach for autonomy. Uh, it was to decide right without reference to God's will. And so we see that in the garden, you still needed to live according to God's will. Life in the happy land, the good life, it includes trusting God's word, obedience to his order and his will. Next we meet in our passage, man's match, woman. Verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement. Uh, men and women in the Bible are certainly equal in God's eyes, but they were not made in the same way we see in Genesis after the uh, repeated refrain, that uh, remember in the first 
section in Genesis, it always says, then God made it and he said it was good over and over again. And God said it was good. But here we learn something is not good. And that is Adam's aloneness. He was without complement, match or opposite. The word for uh, complement is, uh, is the same way that salt complements pepper. It's fit or it's complement, it's match. It's, uh, it's not like a car looking for a wheel or someone looking for a servant. It's, it's not that kind of a complement. Um, and the reason that it's not good for him to be alone is uh, most obviously that humans couldn't uh, reproduce. And yet there's so much more going on here than that. Um, the aloneness, it's not the same as our society's loneliness today. Um, it's about Adam not having another person to show love to. Uh, the love in the, in the love your neighbor sense of love. Adam had no neighbor. Uh, to get deep, I think, God is not alone. If you think about who God is before the creation, God is three in one. And we're told of God's character where he, he loves the different parts of himself. God's character is love. God serves the parts of God, the Father loving the Son, the Son obeying the Father, and so on. And so Adam had no such person to love. No such person could be found. Well, let's return to the account where uh, the match for Adam must be made. A compliment must be found. And, uh, and I guess God, who's always been a bit of a matchmaker, tries to find Adam a wife. Uh, and you've got to remember, this was before all the dating apps. So it was a bit trickier. God has to do it the old-fashioned way. And he does that just by lining up all the possible candidates, and they're looked at one by one. This is the way the account's given to us. Have a look at verse 19. It says, So the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal, every bird of the sky, and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man... No helper was found as his compliment. It's a funny way to kind of uh, put it all, isn't it? Adam, we see, names the animals. He's showing his dominion over them. Uh, and as he looks through every animal, no match, no compliment is found. Uh, and the tension builds in our story, right? There's no eligible singles in the area. What was he looking for? A blonde, blue eyes? Uh, well, the criteria given is he was looking for a helper, a helper as his complement or match. Uh, and I'd, I'd better say here that the word helper, it's not uh, diminutive, it's not implying smallness or less value. Uh, many times God is called a helper. So it's in no way uh, means someone is of less value. Well, uh, good help's hard to find, and so God has to do things the hard way, and that is to make man's match by hand or by rib, I guess. So verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of the ribs, closed the flesh at that place, and then the Lord God made the rib uh, he had taken from the man into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And so we see God uh, performs the first operative surgery. He anesthetizes Adam and then forms the woman from the rib. Why a rib? Uh, people, of course, have looked for evidence in man's bodies. Is there a missing rib and all of that? It kind of uh, misses the point. Uh, perhaps the best explanation is from theologians who, who speculate that woman was formed not from the head, uh, commenting on her intellect, or, you know, his foot, 
commenting on being under the foot or, you know, it wasn't made from the man's hand as though she was meant to be a worker, uh, but he was taken from his rib, from his side to match or as an equal. I kind of like that, but we don't really know. Well, uh, Adam, Adam liked what God had made for him. Uh, compared to the animals, all teeth and fur, Eve must have seemed angelic. Adam's response is to burst forth into poetry. It's the first, maybe it's the last time a husband's done that in a while, I don't know. But that, he sees Eve and he bursts forth into poetry in verse 23 and says, At last, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, this one will be called woman. For she was taken from man. At last! Now you're talking. Well, let's think about what's actually being said here about men and women. Um, because the Bible uh, it presents a clear, unified picture of uh, men and women. They're equal. Um, their, their sex or gender is for this life only. Uh, and in this life, men and women are different. They're given different roles in creation. Uh, and so far we've seen that Adam... Uh, the man was created first, and that Eve, the woman, was created second. She was uh, made from, or in a sense, for uh, Adam. Um, now, in a sense, the origin woman doesn't define, or the origin story doesn't define the woman. Uh, women are not for men. Uh, they're independent individuals in God's eyes, equal. You know, they're, they're judged as individuals, as individual moral beings, uh, apart from men. Uh, and so in some ways, the shape of this origin story is, it is the way that it is just because it's told from Adam's perspective. He was created first, he was looking for Eve, and then she comes along. Uh, but in other ways, the origin story does define and does set out men's and women's roles in creation that are then carried through for the rest of the Bible. Uh, for example, uh, we saw that Adam names Eve. Uh, he calls her woman in verse 23. And this naming is because he's been given uh, headship over the first marriage there. Man is to lead the woman in marriage and to have leadership in the church. That, that's what the Bible says clearly uh, throughout. Um, just in those two contexts, not in general society, just in Christian marriage uh, and in the church, the man is given uh, headship. And our passage today, it sets this up, it sets Adam up as the head. And we know this because the rest of the Bible points back to this moment in Genesis and uses this moment to explain uh, why men and women have been given these different roles uh, by saying this was God's created uh, order. And so let me just choose uh, four quick moments in Scripture which do refer back to this moment. And so firstly, Genesis uh, 3.17, at the fall, right? Uh, God holds... Remember that they eat the fruit and then God holds Adam responsible uh, for obeying even eating the fruit. Um, God holds him responsible because he'd been given leadership. He was ultimately responsible for their wrongdoing as a married couple. So it shows even at that early point, Genesis understands Adam to have headship in the first marriage. Um, at this point, it's important to be clear, it's not suggesting women are more prone to sin or more weak or gullible. Uh, it simply isn't true. Just think of King David, right? If we were going to have a Bible hero, he was a man. And uh, look at his sin of adultery and murder with, uh, with Bathsheba. So it's simply not saying men are given uh, headship because they're less deceived by sin. It simply isn't true. It's simply not what the Bible is saying. Men and women are equal. 
I think, I think maybe I should say it again. You know, men and women, we, we all need to hear this. Nothing suggests women are less able to lead in Scripture. That's not the reason Adam is given headship. It's just because that's how God ordered it. It's simply how God ordered creation. It was his decision as the creator owner of all things. And so that's God's good design. And uh, as we'll see in the next few passages, it, it keeps uh, reiterating this. So another, a second a key passage is the one that we had for our New Testament reading in Ephesians 5. Uh, and it's talking about the family and how the husband has headship over the family. Ephesians 5.22 says wives are to submit to their own husbands. And so it, it's a picture of a self-sacrificial headship where the, the male uh, self-sacrificially loves the wife as Christ does the church. Male, uh, male domination or male oppression of women, it's simply not what the Bible's talking about. Any kind of uh, forcing someone to submit or, or, or domination by men, it's wholly condemned by Scripture. God hates it. Rather, the head, as Christ, is to love and to care for uh, the body, or in this case, his wife. Uh, The other place the Bible refers to the creation of Adam and Eve is in relation to the church, how the church is structured. You'll notice that our church, men preach, uh, and it's because the Bible, uh, in a number of places, uh, confirms that the, the church leadership is to be by men. They've been given headship. So the third passage is 1 Corinthians 11.8. We're told that it's because woman came from man. It points back to this Genesis moment. Uh, for that reason, men are to have leadership in the church. And then fourthly, again, in 2 uh, Timothy 2.1-12, or sorry, 2.12-13, uh, again, pointing back to Genesis, it says this is why men are to have authority in the church and to teach. It's linked back to the fact that Adam was made first. And so it's kind of this, it's a single picture in Scripture that these are the roles God gives men and women. They're different roles. The, the passage in 2 Timothy, it actually, it says women's uh, roles, uh, it's to be uh, childbearing, faith, love, holiness, and good judgment. So men and women have different roles, and they're to live out their faith in Jesus differently, uh, but both according to Scripture to glorify God. I mean, that, that is the most obvious difference between men and women, isn't it? Childbearing. Uh, I think men and women, we can do lots of things the same, if not everything, but I cannot have a child. It's, uh, it's such an obvious point. Uh, the Bible's not ashamed to say it, uh, and yet, you know, in society you feel afraid to even mention it. Um, but, but if you... The fact that we're afraid to mention such an obvious thing, it, it means that we're out of touch with reality, God, God made the world a certain way. He made it good. And if we're here and we're like kind of pretending it's something different, it means we're out of touch. It means we can't actually care for the creation. So, you know, some of the most vulnerable people in our society are single mothers, uh, people that uh, have been left caring for children on their own. And it's because I think as a society we haven't really embraced the fact that we need to support women in this. Uh, and so we lose something. We, we fail as a society, as men and women, when we don't really embrace God's good design that we see here in Genesis. Uh, men and women, they're meant to be in harmony with one another. So verse uh, 24, moving on, it says they become a new family. Uh, let me read verse 24. It says, Man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. 
And so men and women, they, they complement each other, they match each other, and they, they come together, create children, and care for each other uh, and their children. And it's, it's a beautiful picture, uh, as I say, lost by society. Most profoundly, verse 25 says, Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. And so the men and women in the ideal place, in the happy land, they didn't compete, they didn't fight, they, they loved each other, or they cared for each other, they felt no shame. And we, um, we truly have lost this beautiful design for humanity, haven't we, uh, as a result of sin. Uh, it's such a radically different view, it's such a radically different image of what uh, humanity should be, of how we should relate than, than that of the world around us that we see. Men, uh, men need to, to not abuse their God-given position of headship, as they so often do uh, throughout history, even now, of course. Uh, rather, they need to self-sacrificially love women. And women need to embrace this God-given uh, picture of humanity, uh, of woman accepting her, the leadership of uh, men in family and in church. Men and women can both look to Christ uh, who, if you think of Christ, Christ did both the roles of men and women. Christ submitted to the headship of the Father to save the church, uh, and yet we're told that Christ also um, leads, he's head of the church, laying down his life self-sacrificially for the church. Christ fulfills both of those roles, submitting and sacrificing in leadership. Well, uh, one final radical countercultural idea in our passage, is that of, of the coming together, the union of men and women. Um, men and women, they become a new family. They're united, uh, and it mirrors our union with Christ. Um, you know, in the culture that this was written, the, the, the family was uh, sacred. You couldn't say anything was more important than your family. And yet, this passage says, no, no, men and women are to come together and make a new family, and that's to be of the priority for them. And it's an image uh, that our passage ends with. It's actually of God making a new family, of uniting people. Uh, it's through, ultimately, Christ's sacrifice that we are able to be one flesh uh, as a church. And so verse 24 says that men and women in marriage become one flesh and they, they feel no shame. And it's a, it's a profound passage with implications for married uh, couples, uh, there are men, if you're married to a Christian, there's something beautiful being spoken of here, uh, of something that we need to try and embrace, and that is um, being at one with the person you are married to. Uh, it's described here as being uh, naked, not feeling shame with one another. You, you give yourself to your spouse, you don't hold back, a great risk to yourself, um, and you live out God's good picture of marriage. Uh, it's it's a great picture. It's uh, very difficult to do in such a broken world. It's not so simple. Um, but even if, you're, even if you're not married to a Christian, the, the image of becoming one flesh is what is happening in the church. Um, so when it says uh, Adam and Eve become one flesh, obviously it's uh, talking about physically and relationally. Um, but most of all, it's actually saying they become a new family, a new bloodline, um, so the, the man and the woman who were just friends, they become a new family. It becomes a new bloodline. The two friends become related and they're now like brother and sister, one new family. And that's what Christ does for all of his followers, all of us 
here. We're united. We are a brother and sister in Christ because of Christ's blood. We are, we are one uh, body now. We are one church. We become one flesh in Christ. Now all of us here have this. We've become a new family. Well, I think I'll leave it there. There's so much you could say about this. Um, but let's, let's rejoice in the way that God has joined us together in him. And we'll pray and we'll have a, have a question time later on for, I think there's probably lots of things that come out of that passage, but why don't I close in prayer? Heavenly Father, give us a vision for your good design and help us to understand your roles for us in creation uh, and to embrace them and to trust that you alone are good. Father, guide us with your spirit, even in a, a very broken world, where much is not as it should be. And help us to wait with eager anticipation for the final garden, the new creation, where all will be made perfect and your great plan of peace for all will finally be made real. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.